Is there a clicker? At the end of the 18th century, King Friedrich II was king of Prussia. He uh, was otherwise known as Friedrich the Great, or if you were of German descent, he would most probably be Friedrich de Grosse. King Friedrich II was most probably the greatest king of Prussia. He certainly was the longest, uh, longest reigning king of Prussia. But a story is told of King Frederick the Great, how he called his chaplain in to see him one day because he was starting to get skeptical about the truthfulness of the Bible. A lot of Frederick's problems stem from this guy here, Voltaire, or Voltaire. Voltaire was a famous French philosopher. He was a philosopher of the Enlightenment. He was uh, a, 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 a writer, he was an author who published a lot, but he was well known for his, his great wit, and he was well known for his attacks on the church. To be fair, a lot of Voltaire's problems with the church stemmed from what was then a very unholy matrimony between the state and the church. But Voltaire was very, very adamant that Christianity was something that the world should be getting rid of. Unfortunately, King Frederick the Great brought Voltaire into his courts and was learning from him. And so Voltaire was filling King Frederick with these notions. And he said, our religion, talking about Christianity, is assuredly the most ridiculous the most absurd and the most bloody religion that has ever infected this world. Your majesty would do the human race an eternal service by extirpating this famous superstition. Extirpating, I had no idea what that was. I had a quick look up in the dictionary as you, as you would to try and work it out. It just means completely eradicating, making sure that there is not a trace that remains of this religion. Voltaire also went on to very boldly proclaim that within a hundred years from now, Christianity will be a myth. The world will be wiped from Christianity and it will be remembered as a superstitious myth of yesteryear. So, King Friedrich II brought his chaplain before him in this troubled state. And he said to his chaplain, if this Bible is really the truth, it should be possible to prove it in a very brief statement. He said 
times when I've asked you about the inspiration of the Bible, I've been presented with large volumes of work that I have neither the time or the disposition to read. If your Bible is really from God, you should be able to demonstrate the facts simply. Forget long arguments. Give me proof of the Bible's inspiration in a word. The chaplain replied, Your Majesty, I may possibly be able to give you that word. I may possibly be able to give you the proof that you require. For I have a word that proves the inspiration of the Bible. Skeptically, King Friedrich looked at his chaplain and said, tell me this magic word. Tell me this magic word which will give me the proof that I require of the inspiration. The chaplain replied, Israel, your majesty. And the story goes that King Frederick II was silent. I can't help but wonder to myself whether the chaplain had that morning been having his, his daily psalm reading from Psalm 129. Because what the, the chaplain implied from his resp response to King Frederick is exactly what we read in Psalm 129. And that is the survival of the Jews, the survival of the nation of Israel can surely be due to none other than the divine, um, the divine wisdom and the divine protection of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was saying to King Friedrich, when you consider that nation, the only reason they exist as a people is because of Yahweh. And that alone proves the truthfulness of the Bible. This morning we're going to read our Psalm 129. We're going to continue our journey through the Psalms of the Ascent. These, as we've been going through these last few weeks, are, are the Psalms that the, the Jews would sing to each other as they journeyed up to Jerusalem for their religious feasts and festivals. And we've talked about how each of these Psalms speak to a particular season of our lives. And today's Psalm, Psalm 129, we've called prayer in the time of troubles, in times of trouble. I'd invite you to turn in your Bible with me to Psalm 129. And as you turn to Psalm 129, you'll see that the psalm is broken down into two sections of four verses, two stanzas. One which is basically a, a historical reflection, and the next part is something which will make us a little bit uh, uh, uncomfortable as it is a, uh, 
it, it, it's, a, it's a prayer of cursing at first look. But let's start the psalm then together. Let's start from um, the, uh, the first four verses, the first stanza together. And as we read the psalm, I'm sure that you'll see uh, this great stuff in here for us. Psalm 129 says this. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth, let Israel say. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained victory over me. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long, but the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. The psalm starts off with the people of Israel reflecting back on the God, uh, or, or, or God's action in, in history. It starts off, and you might think to yourself, this is, this is someone speaking very personally, because it says, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth. But you see from the, the very next bit of the thing, it says, let Israel say. And this is a common, a, a common occurrence in the Bible uh, when they talk about the, the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is often considered as one body. God talks about pulling Israel up as, as, a, as a person and putting the person together. And when the people of Israel come together and they sing, although they sing in the, in the personal pronouns of, of me and, and, and my and I, they're actually singing together collectively as a we. There is no distinguishing between them. In Hosea, we read this when, talk, when, when talking about the nation, the birth of the nation of Israel. It says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, obviously, Israel is Jacob. Jacob wasn't caught out of Egypt at all. We all know the story that, that we learned last year as we're going through Panorama. This prophecy is talking about the nation of Israel as a, as a person. It talks about Israel being a child, being pulled out of Egypt in their youth, and, called the, and God was calling them the son. And so these are exactly the same sort of terms that we get here in the psalm, as, as the psalmist is saying, we have been, or I have been afflicted, I've been oppressed since my youth. Let all of Israel say, and you can almost, you can almost see the, the, the chant as, as, as the, 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 uh, uh, the song as they're heading up to Jerusalem. Sort of someone might start that first verse, you know, I've been afflicted since youth. Let all of Israel say, and you can almost hear everyone else responding with the next part of it. I've been afflicted since my youth. I've been afflicted since my youth. When you stop and pause and think about it, when you think about the nation of Israel, how true are those words? They surely have been afflicted since their youth, haven't they? When you stop and think about it, as a nation, as a people, they have been afflicted and they've been oppressed far more than any other. If you think about them from their youth, 
he's talking about their, them being pulled out from, from Egypt. So in Egypt, obviously, they were working as slaves. And then when they started to grow strong, Pharaoh started knocking them down by having their, their baby boys killed off for a while. And then eventually when they do escape, they end up in the wilderness. What are they greeted by in the wilderness? Well, they've got people wanting to attack them, got people wanting to get rid of them. The surrounding nations want to destroy them. When they get into Canaanite, the land of Canaan, the promised land, they've got the Canaanites to worry about. But then there's also, you hear about all these battles that they have with the Syrians and the Philistines and the Moabites and the Hittites. And the list goes on and on and on of all these nations that were trying to get rid of Israel and remove them from the face of the world. And you've got to stop and pause and say to yourself, why is this? Why is it that their persecution didn't even finish with the Bible? Why is it when you think of the nation of Israel, you then think of 2,000 years of occupied land, as, as the land was occupied by the Romans, uh, the Greeks, the Arabs, the, the Crusaders, the, the Turks, the British, under foreign occupation all this time when, when, when they, they as a nation were, were put into ghettos, where they were sent away from, from their homelands. And you think, wow, what's all this persecution all about? Surely their persecution is all about the fact that God had declared to Abraham that through your seed all the nations of the world will be blessed. Surely the reason that Israel had been so persecuted over the years is because God had declared that through Israel the Messiah was going to come who was going to get rid of sin, who was going to get rid of death, who was for once for all going to get rid of Satan and his henchmen. And Satan would do anything in his power to make sure that that didn't happen. Satan would do anything in his power to make sure that that nation of Israel was wiped. But it wasn't. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on these verses, sums it up really nicely when he says, It is not just hatred of a people set apart by God to be different. There are many unique peoples on earth after all, but rather Satan's hatred of Israel as the people through whom God promised to send the Messiah to destroy both the devil and his works. Surely Israel can say, they have greatly oppressed me since my youth. But in verse 2, we get a hint of more because it says, but they have not gained victory over me. Some of the, the, the versions of the Bibles that you might have may have, have, have termed it just slightly different instead of no victory over me, but they have not consumed me. Their victory has not been complete. Their victory has not been final. We have not been consumed. We have not been wiped from the face of this world. Why? Well, the psalmist leaves us hanging there for a moment, doesn't he? He doesn't answer that question straight away. 
Instead, he wants to make sure that we are well aware of the great suffering that has taken place. And he draws for us a picture, as the psalmists do. They're great at creating pictures, aren't they? And we'll see this again and again in this psalm. He, he says, our suffering was like a plowman plowing the ground. Plowmen have plowed my back. Plowmen have plowed the back of Israel and made their furrows long. I mean, we can all picture that in our mind, can't we? The, the plow going through the ground, just ripping up the dirt and making those, those furrows deep and long. And Israel saying, that is what our suffering has been like. It's been like someone has just plowed our back and left those scars deep. But then in verse 4, we get the answer. Then in verse 4, we get the answer to why final victory has not been made over them, why they not, have not been consumed. And that is what? But Yahweh is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. The only reason that they have not been wiped from the face of the world is because Yahweh, King of heaven, is righteous and he rescued them. Again and again, he cut them free from the cords of the wicked that bound them. If it was not for Yahweh, if it was not for his righteous intervention, they would not exist. Yahweh's righteousness here refers to the fact that God is faithful to his promise. He was faithful to the promise of, that he gave Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, God is a faithful God. He is righteous, he is just, and he will do as he promised. And that is the only reason that the Israelites sing this psalm. This is the only reason that they sing this to each other. And that is the, the main, this, the, main uh, the main message of this whole psalm. As Israel sings this to each other, is that our survival is found in Yahweh. Our survival is found in God alone. Look, I had great difficulty nailing down this, uh, the, 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 the main take-home message from this psalm because I naturally wanted to put it a, 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 a more positive spin on it. I naturally wanted to perhaps look for more victory. And so, you know, the things that were going through my mind is, 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 is what would, you know, um, uh, in Yahweh alone is ultimate victory. Yeah, that would be a lot more positive, wouldn't it? Eh? Um, or Yahweh, hashtag God of history, hashtag God of tomorrow. Something like that, something a little bit more positive. Don't you think that would be a, a better way to, to, to have you know, come up with a summary? But, but the truth is, actually, 
That's not what the psalm's saying. The psalm is just saying, with all this oppression, everything that's happened to us, our survival is found in Yahweh alone. And actually, as I think about it, there is a beauty in that. You know, when, when we are getting oppressed, when we are getting really smothered by this world, and we are wondering where the strength is going to come to for our, for our next breath, talking about victory actually can seem like a far-off concept. Talking about survival, talking about just making it through, that's where it lies. And we join with the psalmist in saying, our survival, our survival is in Yahweh alone. Our survival is in him alone, in his righteousness. With this in mind then, let's look at the second part of the psalm. Because at first reading, the second part of the psalm makes us a little bit uneasy. It makes us a little bit uneasy because as we read it, we'll find that it's a, it's a song of, of, of cursing. And the thing that makes us a little bit uncomfortable with this is, aren't we told to pray for our enemies? Let's read it together with, with that in mind. Verse 5 says, May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof, which withers before it can grow. A reaper cannot fill his hands with it, nor one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say to them, The blessing of Yahweh be on you. We bless you in the name of Yahweh. To understand this verse, these, this section of verses, I think it's really important for us to understand that very first part of the, of the stanza. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. Zion was the hill upon which Jerusalem was built. And Zion is often referred to in the Bible as place of God's dwelling. It's also taken as being uh, God's plan. And so when it talks here about those who hate Zion, it's actually talking about those who hate Yahweh, those who hate Yahweh's dwelling, those who hate the plan of Yahweh. And actually when you start to read it in that light, you find actually that this isn't a cursing. They aren't praying that, that these people may go to hell or anything like that. But what they're saying is that those who plan to come against Yahweh, may their plans not succeed. May they be turned back in shame. May they, their plans not come to fruition. When you consider the history of, of Israel, we can see this again coming into 
and to play. A few years ago, we, well, you know, when we talk about um, when we talked about the Assyrians coming through the, 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 and sweeping uh, through the, the nation of Israel and surrounding Judah, and Hezekiah came and to the temple of God and threw this all before God, saying, "Yahweh, rescue us, for we are surrounded. We're about to be completely annihilated." We read that that night, an angel of God came down and 185,000 of the Assyrian army were killed in that night and those who weren't killed fled. So that when the people of Judah got up the next morning, there was no army to fight. They'd been turned around and shamed by Yahweh. May those who come... May those who come against Yahweh, may those who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May their plans not succeed. The psalmist then goes on to again create some pictures to help us grasp this. And in and, and so doing, he, he talks about them. May they be like grass on the roof which withers before it can grow. Now, Admittedly, this is a concept which is not particularly easy for us to grasp as New Zealanders because in New Zealanders, we have something called rain. You may or may not have noticed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But rain is great for helping things grow. And so that when I, it was quite interesting, it's quite funny because when I was preparing for the sermon, I just happened to, to, to glance out uh, the bedroom the bedroom window of, of one of my kids to our neighbours and in their second story, in their gutter, basically looked like a beautiful garden. There was a, there was a, a flax growing up from it and you, know, you could almost picture a, a, a fruit tree amongst, amongst it all there bearing fruit in, in, in out of season. And, um, and so this concept of, of, of grass growing on, on the roofs is not a particularly good New Zealand concept. But to, to the Jews who sang this, this, this concept was very, 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 very um, picturesque because their roofs were uh, flat and, and they were, were trodden down earth, basically hard earth over the top of the house. And so in the rainy season, occasionally you'd get some, some water coming down there and the little seeds which may have fallen down into some of the, the cracks or crevices, they, the, those seeds might germinate and up you'd see little bits of grass growing. But because of the, the hardness of the roof that they're on, when the sun came and, the, and those rainy seasons passed, those little bits of grass, they would germinate, but then they would wither and they would come to nothing. And so, you know, the psalmist provides them a, a, a beautiful picture when they're praying against the, the people who come against Yahweh, saying, may their plans just wither like that grass on our roof. May when the reaper comes, with his, uh, comes to, to, to reap the, the grass, may he reach down to grab it and find that there's nothing there. May there be nothing to fill his hands. May there be nothing to fill his arms as he comes to reap from their plans. May their plans come to nothing. And may it not be said of them, the blessing of Yahweh be on you. 
We bless you in the name of Yahweh. This little, this little um, verse at the end was actually a, a common greeting uh, to the harvesters uh, of Israel. We, we read it in Ruth chapter 2 uh, as an example. When Boaz returned from Bethlehem, he greeted his harvesters in the field. The Lord be with you. And the harvesters would reply, and the Lord bless you. And it was a, it was a frequent and, uh, saying for the Israel, Israeli harvesters as they harvested together. A reminder that everything that they are harvesting is from Yahweh. Everything that they are harvesting is from the Lord. And it's a blessing to him. And so they would throw these blessings backwards and forth to each other as reminders. And the psalmist, saying, psalmist is saying, may that never be said of those who come against Zion. May that never be said of those who plot the downfall of Yahweh, who come against Yahweh's dwelling. May it never be said of them, have a bountiful harvest. But may their plans come to nothing. On one level... The take-home message for the psalm is simple for us, isn't it? On a personal level, we can echo these words. On a personal level, when we're going through times of trouble, when we are feeling oppressed, when life feels like just one constant battle, we can draw strength on the fact that our survival is found in Yahweh. Our survival is found in God alone. In Him alone do we live and breathe. And He is a faithful God. He is a righteous God. He is a God who promises. Who promises loss us not only life here but in life to come. And he is a God who is faithful and true. And so on one level, this psalm brings us comfort in our troubles. To not talk about victory, but to talk about survival. But I actually think that the psalm teaches us much, much more than that. I think we can learn from the psalm many, many more things. I think we'd do great to learn from the psalm that actually we don't stand by ourselves. When we sing of when we, we pray of our oppression, we don't, don't sing, we don't pray standing alone. But we are part of a collective body. We are part of God's body, the church. And so that when we come and, 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 and sing and to, to, to verses like this, we should, we should take a lesson from, from it and, and, and realize that actually 
we aren't alone. We are members of God's body. And just like the Bible speaks of, of the, the nation of Israel being a person, so the, the, the body of, of, of God has spoken those same terms. We're described as, as Christ's bride. And so we, when we're going through troubles, we do not do it as individuals. We do it as a body. And you might say to yourself, yeah, yeah, I get that. We are surrounded here this morning as a church. We've got this, this, this church at Botany Life. And that's true, but actually I think this goes beyond that. When we stop to consider that, that the church of God is not Botany Life, we are part of his church. But the church of God is, is, is much greater still. And it encompasses all the other churches in Auckland, the other churches across our nation, the other churches across the world today. And I think it actually provides a, a, a lot more strength and encouragement when we start to realize actually that when we come and we pray to God, we're not coming as one person, but we come as a member of this worldwide body of God, the church. But the other thing I think this, this psalm and the psalms continue to teach us again and again is the importance of remembering what has happened in the past. The, the importance of being able to, to recall what God has done faithfully in the past to be a strength for pushing forward to the future. And I, 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 I'm ashamed, actually, that I grew up in the church, and despite growing up and spending all the years in the, in the church, my knowledge of Christian, of, of, of the history of the church, my knowledge of the, of, of the men and women who have gone before me is sadly lacking. And it's only in the, the more recent years that I've actually realized that there's this amazing wealth sitting there for us in the history of the church and in the people who have gone before James Montgomery Boyce summarizes again this point incredibly well when he says, Western Christians are very often seen, uh, very often see being Christian as essentially an individual matter. Their membership to the body of Christ is quite a secondary aspect of their Christian faith. But even more markedly, individual Christians and churches often see themselves as an essentially contemporary phenomenon, as if it were that we were the first ever Christian generation. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? How so often we consider ourselves as like the very first Christians to have walked this planet, when actually they're this wealth of history that goes before us. And actually, when you start thinking of it like that, and then you read the psalm again, with the lens of the church being the body, 
with the lens of the church history, the psalm again just, just, just provides great strength because the church has been put here as God's body. Why? So that we may make God's make God known to the people around us. The church is here so that God may declare through us his salvation. The church is here so that we may be the physical body on this, on this land of, of, of God, telling others that God deeply wants them, wants to, to, to love them, telling others that, that Jesus Christ has paid the price. We put down here, the Bible says, to be ambassadors, to proclaim God. And you know what? Satan will do anything possible to destroy the church. Satan will do anything possible to make it ineffective. And he'll do anything possible to make you ineffective. And then when you start thinking of it like that, you actually say, well, actually, yeah. Actually, when you stop to consider the, 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 the attacks of Satan down over the centuries and millennia, the church itself has been oppressed greatly since youth. But we are not consumed. We have not been beaten. The first 300 years of the church history the church were under Roman law. And the Romans tried again and again to eradicate the world of Christianity before it even started. In the year, two, in year 303 AD, Emperor Diocletian was emperor of Rome. And he determined to finally rid Rome of these Christians. And he, and he put forward an edict amongst all the, the lands to, to get rid of them. The churches should be razed to the ground. All scripture to be found should be destroyed. And he proclaimed that anyone who, who was in a high position would lose all civil rights. While those in households, if they persisted in their profession of Christianity, would be deprived of all their liberty. Everything was removed from them if they would not come back to the Roman gods. This edict started what was known as um, the, 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 the final um, uh, oppression of, of the church. But this is actually the tenth time the Romans had tried to eradicate the church. Although this is known as the final one and perhaps one of the more bloody ones eventually, this was actually the tenth time that they had tried to get rid of Christianity. And although uh, Diocletian himself didn't want much bloodshed, he abdicated his throne in two years and, and Gallius came to the throne and bloodshed was what made him live. And, and under his rule, this edict just took on a whole new life and, and the Christians' bloods were just flowing throughout the, the streets of Rome and across the Roman Empire. 
as thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Christians were killed because they would not worship these Roman gods. They would stand firm to the, to the one true God that they believed. And, and in 311 AD, Galius says, it's no use. The more we persecute the church, the stronger it gets. It's no use, he says. We can't do it. The great irony of these words here, where they tried to, in 302, eradicate all scriptures and eradicate the Christian religion from the Roman Empire, is that within 25 years, this guy here, Emperor Constantine, this is not working, Emperor Constantine had actually come through and marched into Rome, holding before him what? The cross of Christ. And for all his good and his bad bits, Emperor Constantine brought about the religious freedom of Christians. And not only that, but he made Christianity the official religion of the empire. Within 25 years of this edict saying, we're going to rid the empire of Christianity, Christianity was the official religion of the empire. And the very government that said that we're going to eradicate the word of God were the very government that said, we are going to, to replicate the scriptures. We're going to produce the scriptures so that they can be sent out throughout all of our Roman empire so that people will know everywhere that this God is true. We've been impressed, but we've not been consumed. We've been beaten, but the victory hasn't been theirs. Yahweh, Yahweh alone holds the keys. It shouldn't surprise us, though, should it? Jesus himself said, in the world you'll have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. He doesn't paint a rosy picture for us, does he? In this world we will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome. And so, oh, this jolly blinker. <laughs> a clicker, sorry, not a blinker. So the early church had this Latin saying, which actually you'll often find on, on, on uh, the um, stained glass windows, surrounded often around the, the burning bush, Nec tamen consumator, a Latin phrase that they would greet each other with, which just simply meant yet not consumed. Yet not consumed. We have been persecuted, but we have not been consumed. And I wonder, as we sit here in the Western culture, in the Western church, do we really know what that's all about? I've had the privilege this week to start reading these two quite remarkable books. I ended up in Manor Books, and I picked these two books off the shelf. And the titles you may not necessarily think that you'd be wanting to, to read, Killing Christians and The Insanity of God. But both of them, let me say, are remarkable accounts of what is happening in the persecuted church here today in this world. 
50 countries of this world, the, the Christians are still being persecuted. 200 million Christians are living in persecuted lands at the moment. And you think reading these books is just going to be dreadful. You think that it's going to be terrible to read it because you're just going to, 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 to read of all this bloodshed. But reading these, these, these stories, these accounts of what God is actually doing in the persecuted church is absolutely amazing. These books will take you on a roller coaster of a ride. You'll be shedding tears of, 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 of anguish and sadness, and then followed by tears of joy. You'll have your, your fists clenched in, in anger, and then you'll have your fists clenched in a fist pump as, as these accounts show what God is doing in a remarkable way in the persecuted church in the world. Those of you who listen to Life FM would have heard this fact this last week, that despite all this, the oppression that is going on in Iran, the church in Iran is the fastest growing church in the world. Despite what, what, what the, the, the persecution is going on, despite all the, all the various beheadings and things like that that we see on TV, God is doing an amazing thing in his underground church. And they are singing, Nectarman Consumator, yet not consumed. Because of Yahweh. And so as we think of this psalm, I encourage you to think of it not only as your own oppression, not only as your own persecution, but to think of it wider, to see ourselves as a player in a much larger battle that has raged for millennia, as Satan tries to destroy the church See ourselves not as, as just a little individual having a bit of a problem, but actually realizing we are a, a member of God's body, the church, and that Satan will do anything he wants to make you ineffective. He'll do anything he, he can to make the church ineffective. And know for sure that we will not be defeated. We will not be consumed. We will not be consumed. And let us join with the psalmist in praying against Satan's work, praying against the plans to destroy the church. It's interesting, when you read the accounts coming out in those books, it's fascinating, the, the, the accounts coming out the, written by these people saying, don't feel sorry for us, pray for us, but don't feel sorry because we are so close to Christ. Every morning we wake up, we don't know whether we're going to be alive the following day. And so as we wake up, we basically say, what do you have for us today, Jesus? I wonder how effective would we be for, for, for God if that was our approach? The Western church wouldn't be laying around like a big fat cat in a soft belly sort of flopping around, which I think is what we are. Let's get some claws back, eh? Let's pray. Let's pray against Satan. I love football, and I want to leave you with a picture. Sometimes we think of our Christian life like this. The troubles being this big ball, and we consider ourselves this little tip on the end of a foot, a little toenail, and we think of all the oppression, and we think of coming against Satan, and we think, oh, look, I just can't do it. And you're right. A toe can do nothing. But when we see ourselves as the local church, 
we start to think, well, actually, you know, we've got a foot and we've got a leg and perhaps we could potentially do something. But then when we stop and think of ourselves, not only as a local church across this nation, but then we start thinking about the wider church across the world, the persecuted church which is going into battle against Satan this day, we start to see actually we've got some firm foundation here. We've got some strength. But then when we consider the, oh. (laughs) Is that all of the, is that all my clicks being saved up for one hit? when we see ourselves in the light of history, when we see ourselves in the light of God's work as his body and church over history, and we see Jesus Christ himself as the head, the one who coordinates the church, the one who who can bring the church apart, uh, you know, bring the, the church into what it should be, all of a sudden we see that we're not just a toe by ourselves, but we are part of a, of, of a body that is going to kick Satan. And we're going to kick his rule. And Yahweh alone is our survival. You might be, click on to the next one, please, Mark. This is failing me miserably. <laughs> you might ask yourselves, what happened with Voltaire? What happened to him? Well, obviously, his prediction about Christianity didn't happen because we're 300 years later and we're still meeting here. Voltaire actually fell out with King um, Friedrich. Yeah, he, Friedrich II. Yeah, yeah. He fell out with King Friedrich and then they parted company. But the most amazing thing of all is that within 50 years, of Voltaire's death, his publishing house, his printing press were controlled by the Geneva Bible Society and used to print the Bible. (laughs) Yet not consumed. Our God is great. Let's just close in prayer as, as the team come up. Abba, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for the hope that we have as, as, as we read these words. We thank you so much that despite all the oppression and despite all the greatest attempts of Satan down over the centuries and, 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 and millennia, your church is solid and your church grows. Father, this morning we do stop and we do pray for the persecuted church in the world today. We, we, we pray for those who, who are facing the, the very real threat of death each day as they spread your love and, 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 and spread your grace. Abba, just continue to do a mighty work in them. Continue to, to reach people for you. And we pray for ourselves here in, in the Western church. We pray for ourselves that, that we, may, we may see this battle that rages, that we may not just be, be trapped into just thinking about ourselves, but actually have our eyes opened to this, this great battle that rages around us, Lord. And we, may we stand firmly on you. Yahweh, you alone are our survival. You alone are our hope. You are an awesome God. 
Amén.